This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays, 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Sour the Program. Rob Brigginridge with you here on uh, another busy uh, afternoon here on this Tuesday. Uh, we heard just a little while ago Canada's Deputy Prime Minister talking about the situation in Ukraine uh, and saying that uh, further sanctions from the G7 countries are coming. And, and that's encouraging. Look, the response thus far from the West has been meaningful. It has been impactful. We're seeing uh, the fallout in terms of what's happening to the Russian economy, even just in terms of NATO and Western alliances that have uh, obviously you know, faced some rocky times in recent years, really seem strong. You know, the West is clearly unified. But at the same time, it's, it's premature to declare victory here. Ukrainians have been putting up a remarkable fight. Uh, the Russian advance on Kiev, as we understand, has been stalled. At this hour, though, we are hearing of some large explosions uh, in Kiev and other Ukrainian cities. So clearly, look, Russia is not backing down at this point. And Putin may feel that it's time to ratchet things up and get even more aggressive in this military incursion. So I want to talk a bit more about, you know, what's at stake here. What victory looks like for Putin, what victory looks like for Ukraine and the West, and what is really at stake here. Because I think there is a lot at stake. Joining us uh, for some thoughts on this whole situation, very pleased to welcome to the program this afternoon, Molly McHugh, lead writer at GreatPower.us, a writer and lecturer on Russian influence and information warfare, senior advisor with the Stand Up Republic Foundation, also a former advisor uh, to Georgia's uh, former president. Of course, Georgia dealt with this Russian aggression uh, back in 2008. Molly McHugh, great to have you with us here this afternoon. Welcome to the program. Thanks so much for having me on. You know, we, we heard today uh, there was an update uh, for re- reporters at the Pentagon. U.S. Uh, defense officials believe Putin's advance has stalled. But, you know, we're hearing uh, at this hour about uh, large explosions in, in Kiev. What, what's your assessment, first of all, the situation on the ground in Ukraine? Um, I, I think every night will essentially be the same cycle for right now. And again, it could totally change in, in two days, mm-hmm. but it will be air raid sirens, loud bangs, explosions, um, the effectiveness of those things, and not to minimize the damage that they will cause to whoever is in the way. Um, the, the, the effectiveness of those things will be up for debate, but it creates this atmosphere of siege, of attack that Russia is trying to project. Um, I think it's obvious the first few days of the war did not go the way that they wanted. They did not achieve their strategic objectives, and now they are adapting to whatever is going to be phase two. Um, In the interim, we see signs that they do, uh, that they are doing what they do when they're not doing well in the wars, which is target civilians, as they are doing in Kharkiv. um, Which is sort of try to to create terror and panic, uh, which I mean, the Ukrainians are angry uh, more than anything, um, and I think there's a real miscalculation to some degree on on how the strategy might work. Um, but it's not it's not going to get quiet until the the balance is changed in some significant way. 
I mean, clearly Ukrainians are motivated to, to fight. Uh, you know, there's been some question about just how motivated Russian soldiers are to fight, whether they knew what they were getting into, how looked after they have been, and, you know, logistical issues, obviously, with uh, all of this this Russian buildup. What does it tell us about, you know, the, the atmosphere in Russia right now? I mean, is there public buy-in here? Is, is Putin becoming isolated even within his own country yet? It's it, the, the what is going on in Putin's mind stuff. Uh, I think everybody spends a lot of time speculating on it, and sometimes it's not so useful just because it's impossible to know. I think sure. what we see in the public, though, is what's important. And what we see from, from the Ukrainian side, which is captured Russian soldiers, the ones who have surrendered, the ones who are walking away from their equipment, um, when calling home, their parents have no idea that they are in a war, that they are in Ukraine. They have no idea that this is happening. Um, I think many of the soldiers indicated they thought they were on an exercise until hours before they were sent across the border. They're obviously not well supplied. The supply lines are not in place for them. Um, there were stories today that they're using, you know, open comms, like open radios, and in some cases their cell phones, which in a time of war is particularly stupid because everybody can intercept you talking to other people about the operations you're trying to conduct. So there's this sense of fracture and not being prepared because the initial strategy or the belief was that they would just come in, make lots of noise. That first night there was, you know, missiles and, and things firing at a bunch of different cities at the same time, trying to make it look like this all-over war, um, but that they were going to get to the capital, that the government would just collapse, and then everybody would just sort of give up and go home. And that didn't work. Mm -hmm. And now Russia is trying to establish, uh, you know, trying to get real troops on the ground, sending more guys around Kiev. Uh, I think the other focus is, is in the east, in the southeast, um, as sort of a major strategic area. They're trying to make gains um, and then just sort of pounding Kharkiv in the hopes, I think, that they can get uh, some of these cities to surrender or change sides. Um, it, it will be this sort of dispersed strategy because it doesn't have a center to it right now. If they can't make the government go away. And I think the government has done a good job in the early days of ensuring that people understand we are not looking at surrender. We are not going to run away. We are going to be here. We are going to fight. We will be with you as you fight. The country has the right energy right now. But in Russia, that looks very different. There's still very little awareness about what the war looks like. It's clearly starting to break through. Uh, you have seen large street protests. I mean, in Russia, any any protest with more than, you know, 100 people in it requires tremendous bravery. There, are, right. You can immediately be arrested for protesting. Um, and we've seen Russians in the streets. We've seen uh, official Russians, sort of corporate Russians, you know, people with, with uh, higher level jobs contributing to the online campaign of no war that is in Russian that is happening. Um, I think there's this real sense of shock uh, from the soldiers, from their families, from the public that this has actually happened because, you know, the entire media landscape that they were engaged in, uh, if you weren't reading outside press and, and the small opposition press that remains in Russia, was there's not going to be a war. These crazy Americans are beating the war drums, but like they're nonsense. They don't know what's going on. So everybody thought this was an exercise. Would it be dangerous at this point to 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 believe that there is no no victory here for Putin? That uh, he's been embarrassed, he's been isolated. Uh, that that there, there's there's nothing but defeat. You know, no, no matter which way this goes from here. I mean, you know, Putin is is uh, 
he's, he's crafty, he's dangerous. Uh, maybe we should be careful about making those kinds of assumptions then. I agree with you on the cornered rat is a dangerous rat uh, uh, assumption. Yeah. Um, I think there's a lot of thinking about this right now. What would, how could he lash out? What would that look like? What would he do? I think what we need to remain very focused on right now is that the most dangerous thing we can do is make him think that there's any way out of this. Uh, we need to stay united. We need to stay resolved. The mobilization that has happened in Europe uh, over the weekend in particular, that sort of first 48 hours, um, uh, to it was just a, a sea change in Europe in terms of its own thinking about itself, how the public mobilized, how they pressured the governments to get on board. And now you really see people thinking um, in, in a very concrete way about how much are we going to let the Russians do? If we know they're sending a 40-mile-long military convoy toward the capital, and that could be artillery and rockets and things they're going to use to slaughter people, do we let that happen? And just at that that those discussions are happening are a sea change from where we were 10 days ago, where it was sanctions, 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 and not much more. Um, so I think uh, what we need to stay focused on is that this can be the beginning of the end of Putin, the beginning of the end of a Russia that we have to have these kinds of conversations about on every four, six-year intervals as they reinvade neighbors, attack things, break international law, force us to, to revise how we are viewing power structures in the world. Um, I think we all realize now this, this needs to end um, because he's willing to throw his own people and the Ukrainians into a giant meat grinder for the sake of what? I mean, really, what? Just what? And um, uh, I think the U.S. is maybe a few steps behind understanding the sea change that is underway in in. Europe right now. Um, but I think there's going to be a lot of support for Ukraine, and I think it will be sustainable. And that's bad news for Putin. But we can't let yeah, him think it's... there's some way out of this other than surrender. Well, that's the thing. And right, I mean, and you wrote about it this week, just how high the stakes are. I mean, certainly we, we are concerned about Ukraine and, and Ukraine's future. But uh, there, there's so much at stake here, right? And maybe people don't appreciate yep. just how, how big and how important this whole situation is. It is. I think, you know, over, over the past 20 years or so, it ha has been the decline of Western morale, sort of the post-Iraq war period, all of the things where we've sort of been looking at ourselves and wondering if we are living up to the values that we claim we represent. All of us have domestic struggles. There's division. There's strife. There's protests. There's crazy disinformation that people are believing and spreading. You know, and in all of those things, we kind of look and just feel fracture and in some senses project a sense of decline that may or may not be real. Um, it's been a tough two decades for all of us uh, in, in NATO and sort of the broader transatlantic uh, community. Um, and I think in some senses, we've really missed the challenge that Russia has been consistently presenting to us as it undermines our values, as it tries to erode all of the things that we think are important for ourselves, our identity, and our history, even that democracy should be a thing. Uh, he views it as an anom anomaly in history that will eventually be erased. Um, and what we are fighting for here is not just Ukraine, not just a piece of land, but uh, the war that the Ukrainians have been fighting for eight years, which is to defend Europe, to defend uh, the idea of 
that democratic states, that representative governments uh, have a place in the future and can withstand pressure from autocracy. Um, all of this is important, and I think we understand it. And even, I think for the Europeans, it's, it's a, you know, such an, a much more immediate thing for them because many of them still have immediate, sort of extended family references to cities being bombed in World War II that Americans and Canadians, obviously, we don't really have these. Um, we're, even though we were participants in the war, we don't have the sense of, like, our territory is being taken. Um, and I think that seeing what was happening in Ukraine just sort of triggered this thing in Europeans that we cannot do this again. Um, so it's, I think there is a sea change. I think we need to keep it together. I think we need to stay really tight and unified on thinking what we can do. Ukraine is willing to fight. They are willing to be the weapon in this war. And we have to shove absolutely everything we can forward to let them do it. And, and just a point on, on, you know, Russian disinformation and information warfare, which they, they seem to have perfected over the years. But as it stumbled here, we finally defanged some of this uh, information warfare. I mean, they had no real pretense for this invasion to begin with, despite their efforts. And it feels like that disinformation machine has, has stumbled here. Absolutely. I think it's it's really hard to know. And, and once there is an end to this and there's sort of more time to sit back and do extensive analysis, I think there will be a lot of it done. It's hard to know what worked here. Was it the more aggressive um, intelligence release strategy that the White House, the Brits, others in the alliance embraced, sort of uh, quickly declassifying intercepted information about um, Russian decision making, how they were looking at creating false flag attacks, how they were looking at setting pretext for a potential invasion to, to make it the Ukrainians fall, to create these false stories, um, to have an easy way of, of looking for international cover on what they were about to do. Um, was it the, was, so was it the preemptive intelligence that was being released? I do think that had a significant factor, um, it, it, particularly because the Russians just aren't used to having an uncontested information domain. Uh, or they're used to having the uncontested inf- information domain. So usually they tell their crazy stories. And since there's nothing else out there, all of our media also covers the crazy stories because it's a story, you know. And then they have all this free amplification of, of their nonsense and lies. And they didn't have that this time. Instead, we were covering the fact that everybody was talking about the nonsense and lies they were about to tell. So I think that was really significant. It's also just very curious. Uh, a lot of what they tried to do either fizzled, stumbled, didn't work. It's unclear if they didn't put the same kind of resourcing into that they've done in the past. The narratives they tried to use the first days of the war, uh, a lot of the Ukrainians give up and surrender, your government has already fallen, you know, no one is mobilizing, cities are lost. They were trying these kinds of things to create panic in the public and to create dismay in the fighters, and none of them worked. Instead, they were just totally overwhelmed by the amazing and sort of glorious Ukrainian information effort to make these stories of heroes. Uh, and bravery and resolve that we could all engage with and be inspired by. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think there's so many different things happening. It's hard to know what was the most significant factor, but you're absolutely right that what the Russians tried to do this time just kind of didn't ignite. And I think that's going to be an interesting thing for us to study uh, and uh, use as an example in the future for how we look at these, how we look at these conflicts. Indeed. Well, we'll leave it there. Your latest, much more, uh, as mentioned, greatpower.us. Molly McHugh, thanks so much for the uh, insight. Appreciate you making some time for us here today. Great chat. Thanks for having me on. Likewise. All the best. Uh, that is Molly McHugh.
uh, lead writer at greatpower.us, a writer and lecturer on Russian influence and information warfare, also a senior advisor uh, with the Stand Up Republic Foundation in the U.S. So some interesting thoughts from her on these early days of the war, how it's gone, and, and you know, what's at stake here, which, as she says, is a lot. We'll take a timeout. We'll come back. Got some time for your phone calls here in Edmonton, 780-496-0063. In Calgary, 403-974-8255. My name is Rob Breckenridge. We're back after this. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.